Let's pray. Where else can we go? We don't want to go anywhere else. You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And in fact, knowing You is eternal life and the Son in whom You sent. Lord, we want to know You. We want to hear from You. We want to behold Your face, Your glory. We want to be moved to worship, moved to obedience, moved to more faithfulness. We want to have Your Word transform us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, do what only You can do. I am but a man. But Lord, You use weak men to do Your great wonders. Please do that for us all. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Philemon. As you know, we have gone through the book of Colossians, and it was a great help to my soul. Now we come to Philemon. And Philemon is going to be handled a bit differently in that we're going to be kind of looking at some big pictures and dealing with some verses as throughout um, and then spacing this out maybe into three parts. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 right now. Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epiphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was asked by His disciples to teach them to pray. You remember the scene, right? And He taught them what we affectionately call the Lord's Prayer. And in this glorious prayer, the Lord lays out just eternal beauties and practical needs. But there was one line in the prayer that I find that I think many of us overlook. Not that we overlook the actual words, but the implication of the words is what we tend to miss. And here's the line. Forgive us our sins as what? We forgive those who sin against us. So what does that line teach us? Well, it teaches us several things. But the one I want you to feel, I want you to struggle With, what I want you to behold is this. 
you will constantly need to forgive others. And you will constantly need to be forgiven, even in the church. How often do you pray for the Lord to forgive you? Every day? Several times a day? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What is the implication? How often are you sinned against? Let me ask you this. Who do you need to forgive today? Who has hurt you? Who has offended you? Who have you been keeping in the prison of unforgiveness? This letter, this little letter, is going to confront you right there and me. It's going to make us uncomfortable, but that's good. It's going to challenge you at the very core and definition of what it means to forgive. Why does the Lord do this? Because He loves His children. He's bought you with the blood of His Son. He has made a covenant to free you, as we heard from the idols in your heart, including the idol of unforgiveness. He will make you into the image of His Son. And for those of you who are here who are not children of the living God, you don't know Him, and you wonder, why is it that it's so hard for me to forgive? It's almost impossible. I I don't like doing it. I know I'm supposed to, but it's as though I don't have the ability. The reason is, is because you have not been forgiven by God. Only forgiven people are able and willing to forgive others from the heart. Is this that one sin that keeps you from Christ. Well, all of this will be confronted and Lord willing, the love of God will crush your hardened heart and bring you to your knees in repentance and faith. So let's, let's dive in. If you're taking notes, the first point is the setting and the scenery. I tried to make all of these start with S to make it a little easier there. Um, What's the setting? What's the scene? We're going to be introduced to these characters, the main one being Philemon, of course. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epiphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Paul wrote four letters while he was in prison, uh, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon. And if you remember, at the end of Colossians, Paul sent these letters in the hands of trusted men. He wanted them to take those letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Can anyone trust you with such a task? Are you trustworthy? Can someone depend on you to complete the assignment and mission? Paul had Tychicus and Onesimus, these faithful men that Paul could depend on. He could rely on them to take these precious letters to encourage the saints, the brothers and sisters who were being persecuted by Rome 
and Jerusalem and who were being attacked and assaulted by false teachers. This was very common, Paul, to send his letters by the hand of faithful believers. This letter was written to a brother in the church at Colossae named Philemon. But we're told something about Philemon and Paul that they had a a history. We don't know all the details, but we know some things. If you look at verses 4 and 5, he says, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. Now, I can almost make it sound like he only heard of Philemon from afar. But if you look at verse 19, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. The understanding is that there was a closeness in this relationship. And while we don't know all the details, what we do know is that Paul was a major factor in Philemon's life, particularly spiritually. We'll talk more about Philemon later, but we get these two other names. Epiphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now, many people have, well, actually, few people have come up with some different ideas, but the common understanding is that this is probably his wife and his son. Of Pythia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. This is the family of Philemon. The only time we read about Epiphia, all we're told is that she's a sister in Christ. And we met his son, the fellow soldier, in Colossians. He's at the very end. Remember he said, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So here is a family. You have a a husband, Philemon, the wife, Epiphia, the son, Archippus, and the whole family is involved in the work of Christ. They're even using their home. Their home was used for the meetings, which is a very common thing during that time. Of course, the church was persecuted, marginalized. They didn't have buildings. They couldn't rent out spaces uh, like we are able to do. They had to meet in homes, and the person who had the biggest home would typically be the one who would open up their home. But we can gain some instruction here, just briefly. Uh, How involved is your family in the work of the kingdom? Is there anything in you that seeks to bring your whole family together for the sake of the Lord's name? Are there ways to get your children involved, your wife involved? You know, there's a reality that as Christians, we like to sometimes do things by ourselves. There's the Lone Ranger Christian problem. But then we recognize, okay, that's not right. We're supposed to be doing things with other believers. And what we can do, we can have a tendency to do, is walk past believers in our own home to join hands with a believer across town. But here's a good example of a man who had his wife and his son and his home being used and united around the things of Christ for the sake of Christ in service of the church. As I said, the church was meeting in their home, and it doesn't mean that that was indicating that uh, Philemon was the pastor. Some people have gone there and said, well, since the church was meeting in his home, that must mean that he was the pastor. We know that's not true because in Colossians, it talks about the church that meets in 
her home. <laughs> and we don't want to say, therefore, there's a woman pastor because the church was meeting in a woman's home. No, this is just someone who was seeing what we have is from the Lord and for the Lord. Can you do that? Is there any way that you can look at your family, your family dynamic, your home, your, uh, the, the resources that you have, pull them together to do something for the Lord? What I'm doing here is seeking just to introduce you to Philemon. And we're going to dive into verses 4 through 7 where Paul lays out more and we get to learn more about this brother. This is all very uh, important. What we know so far is he was a faithful brother, a fellow worker, a husband, a father, a member of the local church. But there's more. Verse four, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. We stop there. Paul said he heard about the love and faith that Philemon had toward the Lord. Are you faithful to the Lord? How faithful are you? Maybe a better question. Now, it's true that when things are going easy, it's easy to be faithful. But when things are hard, when things are difficult, when the pressure is on, how faithful do you remain? But he wasn't just faithful. You can be faithful out of duty and obligation. He says he heard about the love, the love that Philemon had for the Lord Jesus. If the Lord opened up your heart and examined it, how much of the things that you do for his name are driven by love? Think of your prayer life. How many of the prayers that you lift up to God on behalf of others for yourself are driven and motivated by love for Him? How many pages of the Bible do you read because you love Him? Because you know we can read because it's something Christians are supposed to do. We can read because it's my devotional time. We could read because I'm on a reading plan. It's the beginning of the year. We're supposed to do that. But love... Love driving what you do for him. How much love is moving you? Do you see, this brother loved the Lord. His love was documented. His love was well known. He had a reputation of it, so much so that Paul in a prison in Rome hears about it. And this love that Philemon has for the Lord moves him to faithfulness. The love leads into the faithfulness. What about you? I mean, when you think of the Lord and His worthiness, is your love growing? More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee, right? Is your love growing and that love for Him because you see Him, you know Him, the knowledge of Him is increasing and therefore you say, this God who I'm seeing, I love because He's precious and perfect. He's holy, holy, holy. He's gracious, good. He's a jealous God. He's almighty and yet He's slow to anger. He's patient. All the attributes of God build your heart to more love and you say, this God that I'm learning more about and I am enjoying, I want to obey. I, I want to serve. This is Philemon. He was dependable. He was trustworthy. He was obedient. 
Not only did he have love for God, but we can also see something else about him. You see where uh, Paul says, and for how many of the saints? All the saints. All the saints. Are there any saints in this church that you cannot say with a clear conscience that you have love for? Is there any brother or sister that you don't like, that you don't get along with, that you like when they don't show up? Are there people in this church that you try to avoid? You try to pretend you don't see them and you hope that they don't see you because you don't really want to talk to them. Brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful example in Philemon. The sin of partiality had not conquered him. You know partiality, right? Where you treat one person one way and another person another way. You're biased, you're partial. All the saints. No matter what they look like, skin color didn't matter. Ethnicity didn't matter. Jew or Gentile didn't matter. Didn't matter where they came from. Didn't matter what they had done or where they were. As long as they were a blood-bought one, Philemon had love for them. Does that sound like you? Is the, the blood of Christ all that matters? You find out you're a Christian? That's all I need to know. Are you committed to the body of Christ like this? Or... Do we just throw away relationships when they get too hard? Oh, even outside of our church, the saints. I mean, he doesn't say, I mean, we know the context. He's talking about the people in Colossae. But all the saints applies to all the saints. Are there any Christians in all the world that you hear their name, you know they're a Christian. We're not talking about the hypocrites and the, 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 the goats and the wolves and sheep clothing. No, these are blood-bought ones. Are there any believers that you say, you know, I hear their name and I just feel some type of way? Or do you have love for all the saints? How is that? As I'm saying this, is it dawning on your mind I need to make peace with somebody. Maybe even after this message, there's someone that you need to go and get it right with because they're a saint. And we're supposed to have love for all the saints. Why? Because they deserve your love. They deserve your commitment. We know better. (laughs) What do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. None of us deserve to be loved or to be treated kindly. No, we deserve judgment. The reason why is because God chose them. Christ bled for them and the Spirit of God indwells them. That's enough, right? We see another excellent characteristic. Philemon, he loved God. He was faithful to God, faithful to Christ. He had love for all the saints It also says he was evangelistic. Look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The sharing of your faith. How do you share your faith? How did he do it? The same way you do it. 
He talked to people. He told people about Jesus. He opened his mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He shared his love for Christ. He shared the truth about Christ. He wanted people to know about this God that he loved so much. People today will tell you two things you're not supposed to talk about. Politics and religion. Keep that. But you love Jesus. Great. Keep that in your house. Keep that between you. Keep it in your family. You want to do that? Fine. But don't talk to us about it. You got your thing. I got my thing. No. We share because God is worthy. And we look at this world of people who don't love the God who made them. They don't worship the God who created them. And that bothers us. We, we, we see idols laid out all over the place. And first it bothers us in us, and then it bothers us in this world. And we say, no, he deserves to be worshipped. You must know this. And he also cared about the souls of men. We know what's going to happen. If you die in your sins, you will perish. If you die in your sins, it's eternal wrath, and you will never be released. But as I said earlier, we have freedom here. Yeah, it's Austin. You talk to people in Austin about Jesus, they may spit at you, may rip up the track, boil it up, throw it at you, say words that should not be mentioned. But think about Philemon's day. Christianity was illegal. Remember Saul, he was hunting down believers. That didn't stop when the Lord saved Paul. People were still hating Christians. The Roman Empire, illegal. This is a cult. Think of the the danger of Philemon sharing his faith in an age where the wrong person hears this. His house is confiscated. His family is arrested. They're thrown into the Colosseum to be the, the entertainment of the drunk Romans as they are butchered by gladiators and torn apart by wild beasts. And yet Philemon continued to be faithful to share his faith. Have you talked to anybody this week about Christ? When was the last time you told somebody about eternity, about the gospel? Are you waiting for that perfect time? We're all waiting for it, right? The time wasn't right. I'm just waiting for that. It's like Bigfoot. Like, okay, the perfect time. When have you ever had that perfect time? It's always awkward. It's always uncomfortable. You always feel nervous. You always feel like it's not the right time. That perfect time is not going to come. You know when the perfect time is? No. The perfect time is when you have opportunity. Philemon shared his faith. And lastly, he, he, he loved the Lord Jesus. He was faithful to him. He had love for all the saints. He shared his faith. He also had a heart for the saints. Not, not, not just love from afar, but Look at verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Why? Why was Paul so captivated by this brother? Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I was thinking about this point and I was thinking, okay. After I leave 
the presence of the saints, how are their hearts? Are they crushed, grieved, discouraged, broken? Am I leaving a trail of, you know, talk about the, the trail of tears, right? Historical. Is there a trail of tears after you leave the saints? Or are their hearts refreshed? Like this, this brother, this sister just tells me about Christ. And yes, they even confront me about sin, but they do it in such a way where I know they love me and they're out for my good and they're not belittling me and trying to put me down, but they actually are interested in my well-being. Are you refreshing the hearts of the saints? Or rather, is the Lord refreshing the hearts of the saints through you? Are they refreshed? Philemon was faithful to the Lord. He loved the Lord. He wasn't biased towards some Christians. He had love for all the saints. He was opening his mouth with boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel. And he was refreshing the saints. This is the brother that Paul wrote to. This is Philemon. This is the man who was called to forgive a great offense against him. And the only way for him to have such character is because he was in Christ. This is not because Philemon was just such a great guy. It's because there was a great God who had great mercy upon his great sin because of the great sacrifice of the Son of God. The only way that Philemon could be held up as an example is because he was in Christ. And so if you look at Philemon and you say, I don't really look like him. I would like to. I want to be more like him. Good news. You can be. Look to Christ. Cry out to Him. Repent of the air of life that look not like this and submit yourself to the living God and watch as He transform the heart as you behold Jesus trusting in Him. So there's the scene and the setting. Philemon. But he's not the only character we see here. There's also Paul. And Paul, obviously, is the one who's writing this and he's the one who we're going to see more about. And everything that Paul is doing is setting Philemon up for the big reveal. The second thing we see is selflessness in Paul. Selflessness. Paul, verse 1, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Philemon, Verse 10 and 11, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. It's important to remember that Paul is in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. John MacArthur has a helpful historical note here he says he may have been in a stinking dungeon perhaps the Mamertine prison in Rome which is still available to be seen in its ruins in the center of the ancient ruins of Rome they say the Mamertine prison was a pit in the ground a cell in the ground prisoners were thrown through a hole in the top if you've watched the movie Paul the Apostle 
they take this. He's literally in a hole. Historically accurate. The city sewage system ran alongside that prison and leaked into that dungeon and made it a foul place beyond all comprehension. Paul may have been in that stinking cell, that stinking dungeon filled with the city sewage of Rome. Think about that. No air conditioning. No lavish cell like in a lot of the prisons in our country. The stench of Rome in a hole. What would you be thinking about if you were in that hot, dark, stinking dungeon with the literal filth of Romans all around you? Would you be thinking about yourself? Woe is me? I probably would. Would you be depressed, discouraged, in despair? What does Paul do? He thought about Philemon and Onesimus. He, he wanted to help his friend. He thought about the relationship between these two men, and he wanted to be a peacemaker. He thought about the Colossians, Christians he had never met before. He thought about the glory of God, the beauty of Christ. He wanted to help these people. He thought about false teachers and how to help them to confront them. The truth is, you may never find yourself in a Roman dungeon, but all of you are suffering in some way, aren't you? I mean, there's something you're going through. Even this very moment, you're in the middle of something. How are you handling your suffering? What are you doing while you suffer? What are you, what are you thinking about? What thoughts are running through your mind while you're in pain? Self? Christ. Self? Others. It doesn't mean you're not able to think about yourself. You, you see to the needs of yourself, but also others, right? But... You get the idea. There is a selflessness that we see at the very beginning. The very act of writing this letter as Paul is in a prison is demonstrating selflessness. He's thinking about others who are not in prison, by the way. There's an example of putting self aside for the sake of Christ. But this gets even deeper. Philemon is a pretty important guy. I mean, he has some type of status. Um, he's important. He's faithful. Paul knows him. There's relationship there. They go way back. He's using his home for the saints to meet in. But the reason why Philemon is written is not because of Philemon. The reason why Philemon is written is because of another person. Onesimus. And who was Onesimus? A slave. Not a servant. Not a bond servant. There's no such thing as a bond servant. There's the Greek word doulos, which means slave. He was not an employee. He was not a hired hand. He was a slave. He had no rights, no authority, no position, no earthly power. He was considered the least in the world, lower than livestock. 
The Greeks considered slaves talking tools, a hammer that can talk. Paul writes this special letter while he is suffering greatly for the sake of a slave. Because he was in Christ. The least in the kingdom was worthy of great personal sacrifice in the mind of Paul. How do you treat those who are least in the kingdom? Those that the world looks down on. There's a tendency and a temptation in the local church to want the time and attention of the popular Christian. You go to a conference and there's the speaker. and You're like, I wanted to talk to that person and hear all these other saints. And you're like, yeah, I want to talk to that person. They want to talk to you. Eh, I want to talk to that person. How do we treat the least? Do you find you're not willing to give much time or effort for the sake of the awkward Christian? You know, there are some Christians that are just it's kind of difficult to talk to. It takes more effort. You've got to kind of work through it. And this one's really easy and fun. And the laughter comes. And this one is always weird. And you're like, you know what? I... How significant is this? I mean, think, think about this. Okay, Paul is suffering. He writes this for the sake of a slave, those who the world would look down on. But the fact that we have this letter itself is an amazing statement. Why? You got 27 books in the New Testament, right, Chris? <laughs> 27 books in the New Testament. You got Gospels, Epistles, the Revelation, the History and Acts. Paul wrote personal letters to pastors, Timothy, Titus. This is the only letter from Paul as a friend. He doesn't even say Paul the Apostle. Paul to his friend about an individual matter. It's amazing. This is unique. There's nothing else like it in the entire Bible. This is the only letter, the only book of the Bible that is just for this one relationship. What does this teach us? That God cares about the tiny details of your life and the relationships that you have. God is not just concerned with planting churches and sending missionaries and confronting false teachers and encouraging saints with his promises. He's not only interested in churches and nations and groups and tribes. The Lord is also very interested in you as an individual and the personal relationships that you have. He cares about how you treat individuals. You feel too small for God to see you, to notice you, to care about what you're going through? Behold the book of Philemon. He cares about individuals, households, families, so much so that the Spirit of God made sure that we have this tiny letter in the canon of Scripture. So how are your relationships doing? How are your relationships with your children? 
How's your relationship with your co-workers? With your neighbors? Children? How's the relationship with your siblings going? Are they strained? Are they tense? Are they broken? <clears throat> well, be of good cheer. God cares. He cares. The Lord of glory cares about the people in your life. He sees the strained relationships. He's mindful of it. Paul was mindful of the strained relationship between uh, Onesimus and Philemon, and he wanted to address it immediately. Where does he get a heart like this? Where does he get this heart to care about the weakest one, to see the one that everyone else wouldn't even notice? The Lord Jesus, right? I mean, isn't this just like him? Remember the widow of Nain? Luke 7, 11, I'll refresh your memory. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This was the only thing that Jesus did. He didn't even enter name. The whole purpose of him going to Nain was for this woman and her son, and he moved on. He never even entered the city. He saw her. He saw her. This is Jesus Christ. What about John 5, 1? After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. Now notice this. In these lay a multitude of invalids. How many is a multitude? A lot. A lot. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And notice this language again. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. There were a multitude of people there. Jesus saw one man noticed one man and showed that kindness to that one man. Brethren, isn't this exactly what happened to you? Isn't this what he did to you? Where were you? Lost sheep, wandering in the world, filth, evil, depravity, wickedness, 
the sin of this world clinging and sticking to your wool. And what did the good shepherd do? He left the 99. He saw you. He came to you. He called you. And as his sheep, you heard his voice. You responded and you followed him. Why did he come to you? Was it because you were obedient? You were the most faithful. You were the most lovely. You were the most precious. No, you know, we were the most wicked, rebellious, sinful ones. He came and set his love upon you because he is love. Not because of anything good in you, but for his own pleasure, he saw you and called you and brought you to himself. This is where Paul gets his heart. To see Onesimus, a slave, overlooked, forgotten by the world, but he saw him because the good shepherd saw Paul. Are you imitating the good shepherd too? As you think of your life and the people you know, who is it that you can reach out to? Who is it that's overlooked, unseen? You play with different groups of children and you say, this kid never has anyone to play with. Everyone always skips over them. No one ever chooses them. This person always sits by themselves. This person always leaves early. Who needs prayer? Who's going through? How can I be of a help to those who often go overlooked. We see a selflessness in Paul. We also see the sovereignty of God and that Paul really believed it. Where do I get this from? How does Paul refer to himself? He says, Paul, a prisoner for Nero? No. A prisoner for Rome? A prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then he says later, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. How could he say that he is a prisoner for Christ? Rome put him in prison. The Jews wanted him dead. What is this prisoner for Christ business? Well, one, he was in there because he was preaching Christ. But this is speaking of something else. If you put your finger there, if you want to turn with me to Genesis 45, this is very similar to Joseph's language. Genesis 45, verse 4. So, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Look at this. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That will be enough. But he doesn't stop there. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors and behold verse 8 so it was not you who sent me here but God he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt but didn't the brothers sell him? Wasn't Potiphar involved? Wasn't there a a prisoner and a pharaoh and all that? Yeah, what you intended for evil, 
God intended for good. There's a sovereign God in the mind of Joseph to say, God sent me here. And there's a sovereign God in the mind of Paul to say, I'm a prisoner for Christ. Yes, the Romans arrested me. The Jews wanted me dead. There are plots and schemes all around. But I am here because of Christ. Christ wants me here. He believed in the sovereignty of God. It points to his theology. And Paul communicated this often in his writing, that no matter what he endured, it was all a part of the ultimate plan for the glory of God and the good of his soul. Think of Romans 5, 3, for example. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How can suffering produce endurance unless there is a sovereign God at work in the midst of the suffering, orchestrating the whole thing? Ephesians 3.13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. My suffering is not meaningless, it's for you. This is actually God working in all of this for your good. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then lastly, Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. How did he think about his suffering? It was for a purpose. It was for a reason. Ultimately, the reason of all reasons. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Paul knew everything is under the power and control and providence of Christ. What did Jesus say? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's not a bird in a jungle across the world that dies without the Lord ordaining and orchestrating. But you see, brothers and sisters, it's easy to say we believe in the sovereignty of God when it's on our doctrinal statement, when we're confessing our creeds and our confessions. It's another thing when you're in the midst of pain and struggle and strife to say, I believe in God's sovereignty, that this is his will, it's for my good, it's for his glory, and I rejoice in my sufferings. That's an entirely different thing. Children, do you believe that God is in control of everything? Even when your dog dies? Even when the rain ruins your birthday party that you've been looking forward to all year? When your favorite toy breaks? 
Do you believe that God is still in control and allowed that because he loves you? Sisters, when your baby can't sleep, the food is burned, the schedule is interrupted. We believe in the sovereignty of God, salvation. No one can come to the the, the Son unless the Father who sent him draws them. Amen. But do you believe in the sovereignty of God when it comes to traffic jams? Or phones that go off when they're not supposed to. <laughs> that actually happened to me during a wedding, uh, Caleb's. Thank you, Lord. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God at all times? Sleepless nights, pain in your body, layoffs at work, trials, tribulations, persecution, agony. So much so that you could say like Paul, I am a prisoner for Christ. I am handicapped for Christ. I am unemployed for Christ. I'm in chronic pain for Christ. I am single for Christ because he is sovereign and he has me in this place at this time on purpose for his glory. On our trip, my wife did most of the driving because she loves to drive and I love her. So easy enough. While she was driving, I slept. Now, the two ways to do this. Someone else is driving. You can sleep with one eye open, constantly looking at the gas gauge and the speedometer and looking around, or you can rest. I was able to rest because I trust my wife's driving. In a similar way, the Lord is driving, right? And he says, rest. Do you? Or you constantly like, well, how fast you go? How much gas we got? Where are the cops? Or do you just... <laughs> Not that the Lord would break the law, but you get the point, right? Worry is directly connected to how much you trust. Anxiety is directly tied to how much you trust. If God is sovereign, not if, thank you, R.C. Sproul, since God is sovereign, then we shouldn't worry about anything. The more we worry, the more we show we don't believe in the sovereignty of God as much as we say we do. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God so much so that he could say, I'm a prisoner for Christ. The providence of God. You know what that is, right? I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. I never knew what providence meant until I became a Christian. Providence is how God orchestrates all things to work together for his glory and our good as his people. The providence of God. Meaning the opportunities that you have to show the love of Christ, to forgive, is all according to his plan. You're in that situation with this uncomfortable relationship so that you can forgive by the providence of God. He's given you a stage to display the glory and power of God in your life. Like we sing. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. You run into somebody that uh, 
Like, what are the odds? And they say, small world. You hear people say that? Children, when somebody says small world, say, big God. It's not a small world. The world is huge. It's a big God who orchestrates all things. J.C. Ryle said, there is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in a Christian's journey. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Why is this important? How does this connect? Because Paul is in prison in Rome. He bumps into a random person. And that person happens to be the runaway slave from his friend in Colossae. What are the odds of that? Rome was a huge place. Millions of slaves. And he meets that one. The sovereignty and providence of God. Okay, what is the purpose? What the specific was the S on that? The specifics of this. Why did he write this letter? Well, let me tell you what it's not, because this letter has a lot of confusion surrounding it. He did not write this letter as an attack on slavery. Christianity Today says racism, white nationalism, populism, elitism, marginalization, power differential, economic privilege, economic power, political power, slavery. I could go on, but I leave you to fill in the blanks. Paul's letter to Philemon can be used to address each of these and many more situations. How do we know that this was not written to put an end to slavery? Because remember, Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying letters. One of those letters is the letter to the Colossians. In that letter, two commands are given, one to masters and one to slaves. Many things have been written to masters in the New Testament and not once were masters told, release your slaves. Ephesians 6, 9, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians 4, 1, masters treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. When it comes to slaves, Paul did not write his, the, 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 the slaves who were believers in these churches and he did not tell them rebel, revolt, start an insurrection or run away. 1 Timothy 6.1, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters, believing masters, it's not a contradiction of terms, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What's the point? Philemon was not written to put an end to slavery. It was used by the Lord to do that through the work of Wilberforce and the abolitionists here in this country. But that wasn't the point of the letter. It also was not written as a call to social justice. Again, the United University Church, <clears throat> because Paul says, receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother, they wrote this as we advocate advocate for social justice and economic equity we need to remember that those we advocate for are not others but they are family we advocate for them on the basis of the love of a family member 
when we advocate for Black Lives Matter, it is not just because it is the right thing to do, but it must be because we love our family members of African origin. When we advocate for the refugee seekers, we must remember that they were our family members years ago seeking a safer, better life. When we advocate for those who are fighting for fair compensation, we must remember that they are our children who are hoping to build a future for themselves. The question ultimately becomes, will we do better for our family members? We are all in this together. In God's family, there is no outsider. And Christianity Today says we should read this letter carefully, especially in a day when evangelicals are discovering again the value of justice and working to liberate humans from oppressions of many sorts. Listen, this letter was not written to preach critical race theory, white supremacy, white nationalism, intersectionality, or any of the other stuff. What was the purpose of this letter? What's the specific purpose? Forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why this letter was written. Paul is seeking to persuade his brother in Christ to forgive another Christian who sinned against him. It's as simple as that, and we can apply this to our own lives as we are constantly asking the Lord to forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And you can relate, can't you? Have you ever tried to take two believers who are at odds and try to be a peacemaker? Children, have you ever tried to, mommy's upset at daddy and daddy's upset at mommy and you try to, okay, let's forgive one another, right? We put ourselves in the situation. We know what it's like to try to make peace between two believers who are at odds. That's the reason why Paul was writing this letter. And my last point, what's the story? Every issue of unforgiveness, the need to forgive, there's a story. Who did what to who? So what, what is the story? Philemon, we already heard, faithful brother, loves the Lord, loves the church, evangelistic, friend of Paul, working together with his family. He was a righteous man and he was a slave owner. One of his slaves, who he treated well, how do we know he treated them well? Because he was a righteous man who loved the Lord, was faithful to him, loved all the saints, sought to do good. He was a righteous man and treated his slaves well. One of his slaves, Onesimus, was an unbeliever. How much was a slave? The price for a male slave in Rome at the time of Augustus has been quoted at 500 denarii. A female could go for as much as 6,000 denarii. One recorded price in Pompeii at 79 AD indicates that a slave sold for 2,500 sesterci or 625 denarii. Talking thousands of dollars in today's currency. Philemon spent money for this man to be his slave. He took good care of him as the law would require, as follower of Christ would require. Paul says to Philemon, 
and verse 18 and 19, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. The idea is that as a slave, Onesimus stole from Philemon. We don't know what he stole, how much, but he took something from him. And then he ran away. He runs away to Rome. So he must have took enough for the journey, maybe to even start a new life. He stole significantly from Philemon, this righteous man who was kind to him, who took care of him, who protected him, who did all of that. And now he's left with the bill. He's left with a shortage of help. You can imagine the amount of lies and deception that was needed in order for him to do this. Anyone ever lie to you before? Anyone ever steal from you? Betray you? You gave them your trust and they made you look foolish? Someone that you had been kind to, provided for, poured into, spent time with? Onesimus stole from Philemon, ran away to Rome, living it up. The law. The law for a runaway slave was very severe. Fugitive slaves are almost an obsession in the sources. Rome forbade the harboring of fugitive slaves, and professional slave catchers were hired to hunt down runaways. Advertisements were posted with precise descriptions of escaped slaves and offered rewards. If caught, fugitives could be punished by being whipped, burnt with iron, or killed. Those who lived were branded on the forehead with the letters F-U-G for fugitivus, fugitive. Sometimes slaves had a metal collar riveted around the neck. One such collar is preserved at Rome and states in Latin, I have run away, catch me. If you take me back to my master, you'll be rewarded. Onesimus is a marked man. The law would permit Philemon to put him to death, to whip him, to punish him severely. He has been wronged. He is upset. He did nothing wrong here. Wrong was done to him. And here is this man who's run away, and now God in his mercy has saved him through the preaching of Paul. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with the very letter saying to forgive. It made me think of Uriah. Remember Uriah carrying the letter that resulted in his death? Here is Onesimus carrying the letter pleading for his forgiveness. Well, that's where we're going to stop today. And I just want you to think about this. There are similarities here, right? That's the last S. There's similarities in Onesimus' case and ours. How? Jesus is the Lord of all. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. He owns you. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, including you and me, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You were created for the Lord who owns you, the one who made you. And what does the Bible say? We've run away. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have done what? Have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord is the Lord of all. He owns us. And we, like rebellious slaves, have run away from him. Onesimus stole from his master. What have you done against your Lord? Romans 1.21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Sometimes after a Christmas or a birthday, you get a gift and you're like, I don't really like it. And you hope that the person who gave it to you doesn't see you as you go back to Walmart and try to exchange that gift. Because you don't want it. The Bible says that we exchange the glory of God for stuff. We rejected him. We didn't want him. We have sinned greatly against the Lord of all. So what should you do? Just like Onesimus, return to your master for forgiveness. Because if you don't, if you have not, in Rome they had something called slave catchers who were very good at what they did. And they hunted down the runaway slaves and the punishment that followed was severe. The slave catcher is coming. And if you do not return to the master before the slave catcher comes, it's too late. The Lord returns, it will be too late. But today is the day of mercy. And if you return to the Lord, there will be forgiveness. There will be mercy. There will be salvation. No matter how rebellious of a slave you have been. Father, thank you for this letter. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the example of Philemon and the example even of Paul and the selflessness and the trusting in your sovereignty and the point of this letter, which is urging us toward forgiveness and reconciliation. And Lord, we pray that as we continue through this letter and we're confronted with the issues and wrestle through forgiveness, that we would give forgiveness to those who don't deserve it, just as you have forgiven us in Christ, though we don't deserve your forgiveness. For all the runaway slaves in the room who have not returned to you, Lord, I pray that they would feel the weight of that and that they would return to you, their master, in all humility before you return with judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.